1: Good evening and welcome. My name is Fred Paul and you are watching ADHTV, the new home for common sense commentary in Australia. Well, last night I mentioned the anecdote about former Prime Minister Tony Abbott confronting Russian President Vladimir Putin in 2014 and demanding an apology for being indirectly responsible for the shooting down of passenger jet MH17 the year before killing everyone aboard, including 38 Australians. Putin, being a megalomaniac, refused to apologise. But while he hasn't expressed any remorse for those deaths, Putin's recent decisions have still benefited some Australians anyway. Here's a childcare facility in regional New South Wales that might not have been built if Putin was not such a hostile expansionist in Europe. And here's an indigenous amateur rugby league team that will soon travel from the north of New South Wales to to Shoalhaven in the south to compete in the 50th Annual State Aboriginal Rugby League Knockout Carnival, thanks also in part again to Putin. So what's the connection? Well, both of these are sponsored by Whitehaven Coal, one of Australia's largest and now most successful coal miners its share price has more than tripled since Putin's Russia Russia invaded Ukraine and threw European fuel supplies into turmoil. In its annual statement in July, uh, Whitehaven said there were two reasons for the historically high price of coal, Russia's invasion of Ukraine and long-term underinvestment in the sector. Whitehaven's shareholders, employees, and the various other community organizations it has invested in have all benefited as a result. But Australia could be doing so much more. For example, the price of gas has also increased. Before the pandemic, the price of gas was about 20 euros per megawatt hour. It's now 174. Most of the discussion about Europe and energy these days is about the winter that is about to begin, and rightly so. Thanks to years of switching to renewables and closing down nuclear power plants, Europe is about to face a winter in which thousands of people will die from cold. But the ensuing winter, but the ensuing winter will be even worse. Goldman Sachs predicts the price of gas by then will be 235 euros per megawatt hour. That is more than 10 times the price it was less than three years ago. Europe's reserves will also almost be drained. Even France, which has substantial nuclear energy, will not be immune to the turmoil. Whitehaven took advantage of underinvestment in the coal sector before that, that resource price started rising two years ago. But where are the gas companies doing the same thing now? The answer is they are tied up in green tape and court cases. There have been more than 3,000 gas and oil wells drilled in Australia over the past 50 years, most of them in Western Australia and Victoria. And in all that time, there has hardly been a single spill or accident. But judging by the regulatory hoops these resource companies need to jump through, you'd think they were Chinese companies using Uyghur slaves to make solar panels. One exploration permit for a gas well off the New South Wales coast was denied by previous Prime Minister Scott Morrison last year for for purely political reasons. Former Nationals leader Michael McCormack said on Sky News in August that the PEP 11 exploration license was cancelled because there was an election looming and, quote, we didn't want to ensure that all of those people along the central coast and the eastern coast of Australia were concerned about something that may not have happened, unquote. It's a bit jumbled, but you get the picture. There were four electorates at stake. Politicians think Australians don't like cheap energy and lucrative exports. We here at ADHTV think those politicians are dead-set bonkers. The good news is that Europe is investing heavily in LNG plants to import gas. One LNG terminal has just opened off the Netherlands and Germany is building two more. Similarly, new pipelines are opening to transport the gas across the continent. But the bad news is that for Australia to increase its LNG exports would require more LNG export terminals here. And they take at least three years to build. And that's without our ridiculous regulatory constraints. The world's political instability and insecure fuel supply chains offer Australia a golden opportunity to create enormous wealth, but we need to get cracking. If only Chris Bowen, our federal energy minister, would realise it. But then again, he's also the climate change minister. If that's not a conflict of interest, what is? Now you've probably heard already that there was an awkward moment at the Conservative Political Action Conference in Sydney on the weekend when former Senator Nick Minchin in a panel discussion said the Liberal Party didn't need reforming. Here's that moment.
2: Well, to be frank, I don't know that the Liberal Party needs a whole lot of changing. It has profound...
1: The irony here is that Minchin is, a, is exactly the kind of politician the audience was pro- probably wished was still in Parliament. Unlike many in the party since he left in 2011, he is a true Conservative. He also said he was as disappointed by the last nine years of coalition government as the audience was, but by then it was too late. The audience had been provoked and didn't really care what he said. My next guest, South Australian Senator Alex Antich, got a much warmer reception the previous day for saying this.
3: There's a growing movement of forgotten people who for too long haven't had that political representation, but I'm happy to say that in my home state of South Australia, there are many who are now forging a new home inside a reborn Liberal Party in South Australia, where we are... (laughs) We are providing a home for Conservatives. We are inviting Liberals back to the Liberal Party in South Australia. I encourage you to give it a try. It's a great feeling.
1: Why did the same audience cheer Senator Antich and heckle former Senator Minchin? Well, let's bring Senator Antich in to find out. Alex, welcome.
3: Hi, Fred, how are you?
1: Good, thank you. Alex, firstly, many Australians who call themselves centre-right or Conservative, who Menzies called the forgotten people and Howard called the battlers don't feel entirely at home in the Liberal Party these days. Why do you think that is?
3: Well I, mean, I think actually Nick and I were probably making the same point I, I think really I mean I, I've said the same thing for the longest time and that is that the Liberal Party's value structure is really really sound and the the principles and, and as he pointed out the we believe statement are really really sound and it's hard for anyone to imagine that they would disagree with them I don't, you know, really whether whether you vote labor green or whatever they're pretty sensible sound principles must it. so look I, I don't i don't know but i think um, ultimately um, there are some people that are that are that are smarting i think our people and center right you know voters generally are smarting after the last um, election because you know i think um, there were people there that felt that perhaps we could be doing more to fly the flag on conservative principles. I, I certainly feel like that myself sometimes. And, and you know, it is a product of the people that are involved in it a political party. There's no doubt about that. And I think that's the point Nick was trying to make is, you know, it's almost like don't don't blame the player, playing the game, you know. It's um, a exactly. um, you know, similar sort of sentiment in this, and, except probably the other way around. I think I probably mashed that up. But you know what I mean anyway. These, these, these organisations are some of the people that are involved. And if you're a conservative... And you know you're you're passionate about these values that we all share, then get involved and make sure that you are pre-selecting people who are going to take those values to to Parliament to an election and speak to them without fear or favour. and 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 that's always been my point. that's you know coming along very nicely in South Australia, I think that was the point Nick was trying to make as well.
1: Well, that's why I've got you on. I mean, that moment has been analysed quite extensively this week, so there's no much point in in going over it too much. But, Nick mentioned mentioned that the party now includes plebiscites of members when voting for candidates. Now, can you explain that to the viewers, what what he meant by that?
3: Yeah, well, I mean, commonly uh, in in a political party like ours, and certainly here in South Australia, each individual, we'll call them electorates, but they're called FECs and SECs. They're state and federal seats, basically, break up into smaller membership groups. And of course, um, they then get the opportunity to vote for their representative at an election, the person they pre-select, and there's a different regime for the upper house. But but in essence, they're small pockets of members that vote for each individual person, whereas perhaps in a plebiscite, the, the option is given there for all the members to vote for um, you know, one particular candidate, be it an upper house pre-selection or whatever it might be. That's been very commonly pushed, I think, by the conservative side of the party because you know, I think the the membership of a political party like the Liberal Party is basically a fairly centre-right conservative, um, you know, type of person and um, that would tend to, you know, tend to sort of reflect in those that are being pre-selected. So I know there's been some debate and some discussion about that in New South Wales. We haven't had that in South Australia, but, you know, we are looking at, at constitutional reform here and these are all things which should be discussed, I think.
1: But just, just quickly, what was the system before the plebiscites and why was it causing problems?
3: Well, I, I, look, I'm not really across the New South Wales division in terms of what they were doing, but I, I think some of the, um, you know, the, the, the cause for concern has been the lack of pre-selections that actually took place in New South Wales. I know that's caused a lot of concern in New South Wales with you know, so-called captain's picks. Um, and, look, I think it's always foolish for someone from one division to interfere and, and, and freelance on the politics of, a, of another. But we, we are a, a member-led organisation the Liberal Party, and that is the point. One member, one vote. Um, I think they're pretty sound principles. And uh, wherever we can make sure that we're getting the membership selecting people, I think, you know, we're going to get a reasonable result, particularly when there are lots of members turning up. I mean, one of the other problems with political parties is sometimes you end up with a broad membership and only... a uh, a very small few that actually turn up to events. And that, of course, gives you a slightly different version as well. So what we want are lots of engaged conservatives who are ready to pick, you know, people that represent the party's values to go to an election.
1: Well, that leads me me well to my next question. Uh, What are branch meetings like in your state? I mean, part of the motivation to join a political party would be that branch meetings are actually fun, are they?
3: Yeah. Yeah, well, well, fun. Wow, that's uh, as a word I, you know, you don't often hear with work, and it is work, political work. But I think they're increasingly getting getting more fun. I mean, one of the things that I'm really excited about doing is is having meetings that have um, speakers that aren't necessarily just politicians. I think one of the traps that we've fallen into at political level is is being hauling people like me out in front of a, a, an audience and and, and them discuss their you know their most boring committee that they're sitting on and talking about that in great detail. Well, I, you know, I've been through those myself and I've heard enough about committee structures to last me an entire lifetime. What we're trying to do here in South Australia is get interesting speakers from other parts of the world. They're not always business people, but, you know, of course, we've had journalists. We've had people like Alan, who was, uh, you know, from, from AD, uh, ADH TV, who was good enough to come down and talk to some of our members a week or two ago and and that was a huge success because people got an opportunity to hear from a legend of broadcasting uh you know from their perspective his perspective about what happened so they're the sorts of things i think we need to do to keep these membership driven events fun uh and you know i mean meetings are meetings though you always need a quorum you always need it there and it's hard to it's hard to turn that into a stand-up show but we're doing our best
1: well, I hear that you're probably the most successful at the moment of reviving uh, centre-right sentiments at the at the branch level. Is it hard work, Alex?
3: Yeah, look, I think it is. I mean, I think this is a problem across the community generally. It's not just a problem reflected in politics, but people being involved in community groups of all sorts has clearly dropped off in the last 30 years. We see less people involved in you know, Rotary, and you know their local local community groups, and all those sorts of things. So, getting people to to understand the importance of being involved in politics, and it is critical, by the way, Fred. I mean, we know that you've got to get people um, involved in the process, so that there's more for them to do than just to turn up at an election. You know, we hear people all the time. I hear conservatives all the time whinging about the state of politics, and my first response to them is, "Are you a member of?" the party, and if you're not, why not? And you know, that at least gives you an opportunity to put your voice into it and in policy discussions. So look, I think getting people engaged in any community activities is, is hard work at the moment, but it shouldn't be. Putting some fun back into it, getting interesting people to talk about things they're interested in as well is the critical thing here. I mean, this is a prominent problem that's endemic in politics at the moment. If you go into parliament house in Canberra any day of the week, uh, all you hear about is a federal ICAC, the voice to parliament, uh, and a half a dozen other things that people in the real world are not interested in, we're going to start talking to them about the things they are interested in. And that's what we're doing here, trying to reflect things that they're really passionate about, like what our kids are being taught in schools, you know, their worries about vaccine mandates, whatever it might be, uh, and bring that back. And I think if you're bringing topics, if, you, if you're asking people what they're interested in and to talk about that, rather than just shouting at them about your, you know, your, your, your committee that you've sat on, um, I think that goes a long way to, to getting people back involved.
1: I, I think the source of some of the tension on the weekend was that the party, whether a, you know, whether they like it or not, is indelibly associated with the lockdowns, especially because uh, Scott Morrison seemed so central to it. Do you think at some point the party needs to acknowledge that it got it wrong over the, uh, during the pandemic?
3: Well, I mean, look, I think. Um, Across all levels, we need to hear some mea culpas that have come out of the, of the pandemic era. I mean, that doesn't just apply to politics, it applies to, um, you know, uh, I think the bureaucracy and aspects of the medical pro- profession that have sort of shouted bureaucracy, medical health bureaucrats, and those sorts of things. So I think that's a natural progression. But there was certainly, I mean, there is frustration in the crowd, and there are a lot of people there that probably didn't vote liberal and never have, people that have supported One Nation and others. I, I, I don't know. So there was clearly a lot of frustration about that, and I, and I think that'll you know that that'll dissipate over time. Ultimately, the natural home for conservatives is, is the Liberal Party. In my view, uh, it's a party of government. It's the party where members can get the opportunity to to actually have an opp- opportunity to form policy that goes to you know goes to Parliament with some hope of getting passed. So um, the key to conservatism here, I think, is getting re-engaged in the the major party of conservative politics, the Liberal Party, and. And I think the temperature will calm a bit. There's a whole lot of people. By the way, there are still many private businesses out there that are still doing some of the stuff that, you know, that, that governments were doing a year ago, businesses that are still mandating injections and so forth. There's, a, there's still a long way to go to get people to understand that that path was a, was a trivial and frivolous one, I think.
1: Well, there is indeed. But with you in the Senate, Alex, we've all got hope. So thanks so much for your time, Alex.
3: Thanks, Fred. Appreciate it.
1: That's South Australian Senator Alex Antich. Well, one of the key characteristics of wokeness is frustration with other people's choices. We saw it on the weekend when a mostly white rabble of woke warriors stood outside the Conservative Political Action Conference in Sydney yelling racist, At a coalition of multicultural and indigenous speakers and guests, the protesters don't oppose free speech per se, they just oppose any speech that strays outside their own narrow confines. It angers them because deep down they know ideas that oppose their own are usually more intelligent and persuasive and therefore need to be silenced. New York Times columnist Kevin Roos feels the same way about the renewed threat of free speech at Twitter now that Elon Musk's offer to buy the platform is closer to being accepted. He says Twitter's vocally progressive workforce, who are deeply invested in the platform's so-called healthy debate, will probably resign en masse because, as all work warriors know, there's nothing more dangerous than a health, to a healthy debate than free speech. How free will the speech be on Twitter if Musk's takeover happens? Well, if you're, sitting, if you're standing up, sit down. And if you have pearls, I suggest you clutch them now. Roos says one of the first things Musk will do is welcome President Donald Trump back to Twitter, along with other right-wing warriors who were barred for expressing hateful views, spreading false conspiracy theories, and harassing other users you know, like leftists do every day now that they dominate the platform. If ruse is right and Twitter employees resign en masse when Musk takes over, they're in for a shock. The economy now being managed by their favorite president, Joe Biden, is tanking, and decent work is increasingly difficult to find, especially for people whose only skill in life is to censor and hector other people. They could always try moving to North Korea or China, though. Well, now to my weekly chat with Nick Cater, the host of Nick Cater's Battleground every Friday night here on ADH TV. There's a lot to cover, so let's get straight into it. Nick, welcome. Hi, Fred, how are you? Good. First, let's talk about Facebook taking sides on the debate about the Aboriginal voice to parliament let me guess, it's censoring our side of the debate. Is that right?
0: You're right. It's, it's part of Big Tech's war against conservatives. But in this case, I found this one very chilling. Here we are, you know, we're about, to, we're about to have a conversation. We're being told we need to have a conversation about the voice before we go to a referendum on whether to approve it or not. And now one side of that conversation, which just happens to be the side which opposes the voice, is being silenced on Facebook. And the people uh, who are being silenced is astounding, Fred. So Jacinda Price, for instance, produced a video with, uh, uh, with, uh, with Anthony Dillon, you know, the well-known a- a- academic last week for, for the IPA, and they put that up. It's been taken down. So what's happened? We've got an Aboriginal voice elected to speak in Parliament who's been denied a voice on Facebook because Facebook supports a voice to Parliament. It, I mean, it's absurd on the one hand, but chilling on the other, you know, that, that somebody in Silicon Valley has sat down and said, we are going to take sides in a debate which, in which is purely for Australians to decide the future of their constitution. And if this is what's happening, then I think we're in dire straits.
1: Maybe someone should load the case in favour of the voice onto a laptop and leave it at a repair shop. Maybe then it, maybe then the other side would get banned for a change.
0: Exactly. It would be nice, wouldn't it? And then it would, because then it wouldn't see the light of day, which I think... <laughs> You're alluding to the interview I did with uh, Miranda Devine for tomorrow night's show. Uh, in-
1: well, actually, before, sorry, before we move on to Miranda Devine, that, that's a good segue, but I didn't, <laughs> I didn't actually mean it. Um, but uh, do you think the Prime Minister needs to intervene on this censorship in Australia by Facebook?
0: Absolutely he does. I mean, you know, Scott Morrison doesn't get too much good press these days. But look, one of the things, one of quite a number of things Scott Morrison did that was admirable was to stand up to big tech. You remember, he, he told them, he said, look, you, you should pay for news content rather than just stealing it from Australian news companies. And he won that battle. And he, had an, he, an, he, he took them to task again more recently, Google and Apple, for making it so hard for parents to monitor their kids' internet use online. You know, he, he, he's, he's, he went to bat, battle to persuade them to put the tools up that would allow parents to do that, which is all perfectly reasonable. So governments can stand up to them. And I think in this case, this is a chance for Anthony Albanese to show what a great statesman he is. I mean, he's, he's obviously in favor of the voice himself. He'd probably have some sympathy with the, whoever it is in Silicon Valley who's decided to censor the no case. But he has to understand this is the integrity of our democracy at stake. That if we're gonna have a genuine debate leading up to the uh, referendum, then yes, both sides of the argument must be fully held, heard. And in any case, this is a matter of sovereign rights, isn't it, I think? This is a matter of saying to them, you will not interfere in our political affairs here, which is essentially what Facebook is doing. If you do, there will be consequences. And that's what I'd like to hear from the Prime Minister.
1: Well, we are talking about a change to our constitution here, and that is a voice, uh, uh, an indigenous voice to parliament. But there's another change to the constitution that could be just could be a whole lot more uh, useful in these circumstances that'd be a first amendment. What do you reckon? Oh,
0: yeah, absolutely. We, we suffer from not having one, don't we? Um, I mean, I've, I've felt it up to now that it's good that we don't need one. You know, think it is just a given that free speech exists in this country. It's an it, or implied constitutional right or whatever, whatever it's called. We've never really had to bother about it probably until the last 15 or 20 years and much more intently in recent years. And I think that the arrival of big tech and social media changes things completely. It, it, it's extraordinary that the major decisions were... I mean, it's not just the no case against the voice that's been silenced by social media. It was the no case against vaccine mandates. That was silenced too. The no case against lockdowns. As you know, they, they went to war on those people too. Anything that doesn't fit the establishment narrative, and generally the left establishment narrative, gets, gets focused on and taken down. This genuinely is, Fred, I think, a, a big tech taking sides and going to war against conservatives. And every conservative should be very concerned about it.
1: Yeah, I think you're right. You're also right in observing that things have changed in recent years, especially since the advent of social media, because, you know, traditionally, we didn't really need a First Amendment because Australians just understood on a, on a sort of cultural level, not a, not a constitutional level, we just understood that it was wrong to shut people up, to give everyone a, a fair go, as we like to say. But Since we've all become so uh, um, obsessed with social media, I think that on a cultural level, that idea has kind of slipped away, don't you think?
0: Yeah, absolutely. The the game has changed completely and and, uh, it's a real threat to our democracy and and our freedom of speech. There's no doubt about that. It's like if somebody gets taken down on Facebook these days, you hardly blink an eyelid, do you? Because it's so commonplace. We're in danger of actually getting... Uh, Immunised against this, and so we've got to realise what a terrible, a terrible thing is being done when we silence free speech of any kind. But certainly when, you know, it, it honestly held opinions on relevant matters, policy matters of the day, are shut down because you know whoever it is up there in Silicon Valley or whatever supports the other side. Yeah, that is. I, I just find that really serious, it's, really yeah,
1: serious. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Now, you've also got Australian journalist Miranda Devine on your show tomorrow. She's led the charge against the Bidens in the mm. United States. She's currently working for the New York Post. What's she talking about on your show tomorrow, Nick?
0: Well, we talked about the wash up from her fantastic book, Laptop from Hell, which is about uh, she was the first journalist to get hold of the contents of that laptop that Joe Biden left in a Delaware repair shop and the contents are extraordinary, as you know, you've read the book, but you know, it, 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 it shows, because you've got access to all her, his emails, his bank accounts, the whole lot is on there. She can trace the surreptitious dealings that he had, that Hunter Biden had with, you know, a corrupt energy company, in in Ukraine, with uh, people connected to, to senior people in the Russian administration, uh, businesses high, you know cl- very closely connected with President Xi Jinping, and the fact that this was done in pursuit of uh, I mean he did this on the basis that he had connections in high places, and at the time that was Vice President Joe Biden. Joe Biden is is strongly implicated in this book. Uh, as at least being aware of this activity, if he, even if he wasn't, um, you know, encouraging it. But uh, but you know, the, the connection is far too close to the president to be ignored. And yet, as you know, when Miranda's uh, first reported on this for the New York Post just three weeks before the presidential election, it was taken down by social media. That the whole the New York Post, uh, you know, a newspaper that goes back to oh, 1801, I think, from, founded by. Uh, Alexander, Alexander Hamilton, yeah, exactly, yes. founding father. Um, you know that was taken down by Twitter for two weeks to silence this story, and now she has evidence of the, the FBI's involvement in this, the involvement of senior Democrats. So if if you'd have told me even five years ago, Fred, if you'd come to me and said, "I've got a great story. We've got this great collusion, this conspiracy between FBI, social media, mainstream media, and the Democrats," I'd said. Fred, go and take a Bex and a good lie down, right? (laughs) Exactly. It used to be in journalism, when you and I started, that in a choice between a a conspiracy and a cock-up, you go for the cock-up every time, right? Now, no. I mean, this has changed in the last two years. A Miranda's book... And the evidence that she's brought to bear shows that just because something sounds like a wild conspiracy theory doesn't mean it's not true.
1: Well, the conspiracy, you know, the plot thickens or or it curdles, as they say, because none of the Bidens are in jail. I mean, this is very compelling evidence of the highest level of corruption in United States politics. And nobody's even been charged. Is, Is Miranda as alarmed as some people are about that?
0: Yeah, but I think at the same time resigned to to the fact that that's the way things are. You know, that they can impeach President Trump on what turned out to be well, trumped up charges, if you excuse the pun. You know, the idea of Russia's conclusion, the thing that the ABC said was the biggest story of the century. <laughs> absolutely false. It's been tested and proven to be absolutely wrong. But this, which is very clear evidence of collusion between Joe Biden's son and the Russians and others, oh no, that doesn't matter. It's ignored. I, I, I think Miranda is help, hopeful that things will change uh, if after the midterm elections, the Republicans have control of the House and there's a lot of plans underway for for inquiries and so forth that will drag this truth out into the open. Even then though, I suspect it'll be, But basically, the New York Times and other woke outlets will just run dead on it. So. You know, once again, I think it, it's a strange world, but, but there is a determination to, you know, to attack Republicans for any excuse and an absolute reluctance. You know, you wonder what Joe Biden would have to do before there was a call for an impeachment. From say CNN, you know. Yeah. Whereas better Donald Trump just has to get up and do a lazy tweet, and he's already in the in the, <laughs> That's right. in the, in the, in the box. You know, it it it's, yeah, it's it's too mild to call it double standards, and we're too we're we getting too used to it to even marvel at it. But well, it is sp- extraordinary. But,
1: but speaking of Donald Trump on Twitter, looks like the Twitter deal with with Elon Musk is going to go ahead, uh, which would open the door to Donald Trump getting back on Twitter you looking forward to that, Nick?
0: That'd be terrific, wouldn't it? I mean, I'm glad that Elon hasn't given up um, all hope of this. I mean, if the man can dream of sending people to the moon, surely he can take over Twitter. It can't be that hard <laughs> and straighten it out. I hope he can. I just wonder whether the culture is just so far gone that, you know, the left's grabbed hold of it. You know, there have been various attempts to, to put up right-wing versions of this, but the left right now does have its hands firmly on social media and they won't let go of that without a fight and uh, it'll be an interesting thing if he decides to take them on.
1: Well speaking of feisty debates, uh, <laughs> as I discussed earlier with Alex Antich, things got a little feisty down at CPAC on the weekend and you were in the thick of it actually up on the uh, hosting a uh, or moderating a, a panel discussion on the afternoon, yeah. uh, on the second afternoon. It was all reasonably civil. What I noticed mostly was that uh, the, the people who heckled former Liberal Senator Nick Minchin um, were heckling because the party doesn't have as many people like Nick Minchin in it anymore.
0: That's right, We were heckling him because there's not enough of him. And uh, yeah, that's right, and Tina McQueen was on the panel and, and Amanda Stoker, and we were just having a general discussion, not really about the Liberal Party, but about how we could bottle that fantastic spirit at CPAC and, and turn it into a, something meaningful um, but, unfortunately, I think there were some people... Well, what it showed to me, Paul, is that there are a lot of people on the centre-right, Conservatives, who ha- ha- are deeply, deeply disappointed with the Liberal Party, like beyond disappointed. Uh, that, like, you know, that 660,000 fewer people voted for the coalition. Uh, at this election than did in 2019. Who are that 660,000 people? Well, I think there are a 1,000 of them at CPAC, quite frankly. But they are, they are people who are genuinely you know, on our side, should be on the Liberal side of politics, support Conservative policies, feel betrayed by some of the things the Liberal Party's done and particularly, I think, COVID. I mean, that underlying, when you talk to a lot of people behind the stage, as I did and, and you did amongst the audience, COVID lies beneath a lot of their complaints and whether that's, you know, they, they lost their business, they lost their job because of a vaccine mandate. Um, you know, they weren't allowed to visit family and friends in times of difficulty because of borderline. Whatever it was, there is an awful lot of unhappiness around that. And I think some, and, and Scott Morrison, took the brunt of it. Most of it unfairly, because it was state governments, as you know, did much of this stuff. But he did take the brunt of it. And the Liberal Party has to address this because it needs to get those 660,000 votes back and more. And CPAC is where it it should be starting, not trying to go off there winning back the Teal votes. That That is the hard. That's where the big numbers are. And that's the heart of the problem for the Liberal Party right now.
1: Yeah, I'd say one of the reasons things got a little emotional on that afternoon was that you followed soon after a presentation by Topher Field, the filmmaker behind uh, Battleground Melbourne, which and that was a very emotional moment. And I think, mm. you know, that the the sort of uh, the, the combination of the two was a little unfortunate. You're right, there are a lot of people who who will, given the right circumstances, come back to the Liberal Party. It's just uh, it's a matter of creating those circumstances. Now, look, just before we go, just a couple of quick points. Sydney's about to break a record for annual rainfall. Is this climate change, Nick?
0: <laughs> Something's changed. I mean, this is this is going to be, I think, by overnight Friday, Saturday. Probably by the time many people are watching this on on uh, on demand we will have broken the annual rainfall record for Sydney and we're only at the start of October and there's three more wet months to come. It it, has been exceptionally wet, three London in in a row. Something is very, if it is climate change, it's certainly not the climate change, of course our friend Tim (laughs) Flannery was predicting when he said it would never rain in Sydney again and the dams would never fill. They're so full, we have a problem knowing what to do with the water right now. But I was just interested to see, I admittedly, mean, this is the London Daily Telegraph, but they've got a story today about what the most popular boys' names are. The most popular boys' name right now is Noah. <laughs> <laughs> and living in this rain in Sydney, I can understand
1: that. <laughs> exactly. Nick Cater, thanks so much for your time. Thanks, Fred. That's Nick Cater of Nick Cater's Battleground every Friday night here on ADH-TV. He's also the executive director of the Menzies Research Center. And just before I go, more than 100 people have been confirmed killed by Hurricane Ian, which smashed Florida and South Carolina in the United States on the weekend. And the toll is expected to rise. The damage to property hasn't yet been calculated, but will be enormous. Most politicians who fly into such disaster zones know their role is apolitical. They're there to offer comfort and aid to the victims, but not US President Joe Biden. He turned it into a lecture on, you guessed it.
2: I've been to a lot of disaster areas in the last couple months, uh, last six months, you know, more, uh, more fires have burned in the west and the southwest, burned everything right to the ground than in the entire state of New Jersey, the, the, as much room as that takes up. And the reservoirs out west are, are, are down to almost zero. We're in a situation where the Colorado River looks more like a stream. There's a lot going on. And I think the one thing this has finally ended is a discussion about whether or not there's climate change. We should do something about it.
1: Do something about it. I'm sure the citizens of Miami were delighted to hear that. Or perhaps some of them responded the same way Governor Ron DeSantis did as he stood behind Biden, barely able to conceal his contempt. Biden is famous for desperately trying to ingratiate himself with various communities and failing terribly. During the 2020 election campaign, he pretended to like Latino music and said he represented black voters. In July this year, he claimed to speak on behalf of cancer patients, even though the closest he'd ever got to cancer was having a non-melanoma skin cancer cut off. On Sunday, he visited Puerto Rico, which was also hit by the hurricane and told the locals, quote, I was sort of raised by the Puerto Rican community at home, unquote. This earned predictable mocking from conservative commentators back home. So when Biden visited Miami, t- Miami two days later, his attempt to appeal to the locals was a bit more subtle. Watch this bit again.
2: And I think the one thing this has finally ended is a discussion about whether or not there's climate change and we should do something about it.
1: Did you see it? It's just like this routine from movie detective, from, from detective Horatio Kane in the legendary 1980s TV show, Miami Vice.
2: What are you gonna do? I, I'm gonna get to the truth.
1: Kane was famous for using his sonnies as a prop. But as all Floridians know, if you want to look like you are ready for action, you don't remove your sunnies, you put them on. Joe can't even get that right. Well, that's all from me. Thanks for watching. And just a reminder, download the ADH app from your usual app store, and you can watch all of CPAC Australia, complete with off-stage interviews with some of the leading speakers, free of charge. If you like what we do here on ADH, you are going to love CPAC. And I'll see you again on Monday night at nine o'clock. Good night.